Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 1, it says, And again he entered Capernaum, and after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through... They let down the bed into which the paralytic was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has power on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic. I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up the bed and went out in the presence of them all so that all were amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. In chapter one, the ministry of Jesus is opposed by demons. In the second chapter of Mark, the ministry of Jesus will begin to be opposed by the scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders. The second chapter begins with the servant who forgives in verses 1 through 12. Hence, our message this morning is called the servant who forgives. Later in the chapter, it will continue with the servant who fulfills in verses 13 through 22, and then the servant who provides freedom at, in verse 23, all the way to chapter 3, verse 12. Jesus forgives. Jesus fulfills. Jesus provides freedom. But the ministry of Jesus will be marked by faithful friends and hostile foes. In this section, Mark will move quickly from the place in Capernaum, where healing and forgiveness takes place, to the paralytic who will experience wholeness and wellness, but most of all, forgiveness. The section concludes with some questions and criticisms surrounding the subject of forgiveness. What does it mean to be forgiven in verse 5? The question then comes from the source of forgiveness in verses 8 through 11. And the impact of being forgiven in verse 12. Right from the start, we should ask this question. Why does the Bible spend so much time on the subject of healing and forgiveness? I think intuitively you know the answer. Because most people experience <laughs> some measure of sickness. And we all experience the problem of sin. A man sent a letter it was simply addressed to the United States government. The shaking handwriting wrote, I am sending $10 for blankets that I stole in World War II. My mind can't rest. Sorry I'm late. It was signed an XGI. Then there was a postscript. I want to be ready to meet God. Now, apparently, his letter is one of thousands of letters that the United States government receives. Since 1811, notes and funds have been deposited in a, in, a, in a group called the Conscience Fund. And apparently, it adds up now to about $3.5 million. <laughs> Another person wrote, I cheated on my taxes. I feel guilty. Enclosed is $150. If I still feel guilty, I'll send you the rest. 
The famous author, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, had a wry sense of humor. He's best remembered for creating the wonderful character Sherlock Holmes. And in one of the stories, he opens with an incredible prank. He decides to send a dozen friends a single telegram with the same message. It read, flee at once. Everything is discovered. And within 24 hours, all 12 of them left the country. In my life, I've played similar pranks. Once I called a person and I pretended that I was from the IRS. I said, hi, this is Stephen Lentz from the Internal Revenue Service. And we've decided to review your taxes for the last five years. Now, not all pranks are created equal. I discovered it's illegal to impersonate a federal agent. You could be charged with a crime. We all have sins, and some of them are great, and some of them include fear and guilt and failure, and we begin to accumulate sins the way a hoarder hoards stuff. Human beings' greatest need is to have their sins forgiven. And so far, Jesus has become famous for healing the sick. Jesus has cured the incurable. He's delivered the demonic. He has touched the untouchable. But now Jesus is going to do something unthinkable and incredible. He is going to claim authority in an area that's reserved exclusively for God. And the moment Jesus says, Son, your sins are forgiven, you can see the scribes and Pharisees begin to choke on the words. The opposition from the religious leaders will escalate. At first, the religious leaders will reason in their hearts in verses 6 and 7. This is going to be followed by a complaint that, to his disciples in verse 16. Then they're going to begin to protest to Jesus himself, not because of something Jesus has done, but because of what his disciples are doing. And by the third chapter, everything is going to begin to unravel as they seek to destroy him and charge him with being in league with the devil. In verse 1, look again what it says. And again, he entered Capernaum, and after some days, it was heard that he was in the house. The, the language Mark uses literally is, it was heard. He is in a house. This is the Greek way of saying, the people heard that he had come home. Many people had missed the opportunity to see Jesus or, or hear or experience healing. As a matter of fact, we learned that he was in Capernaum, and you'll remember that he touched the leper, and the leper went out all about, and he was unable, but he returns to his hometown of Capernaum. This gives people another opportunity to hear from Jesus. And by the way, what happens when Jesus shows up? Good men are attracted to him. Bad men benefit from him. Sick people are healed by him. Broken people are made whole by him. Guilty people are forgiven by him. And Mark uses his favorite expression in verse 2. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. Again, Mark points to the priority of preaching the word. And you'll notice that here the word is singular. It's not words. When it says he preached the word, it's not the typical word, keruzo, which means to proclaim publicly in an open air kind of way. But rather he is exhorting them to believe the word. And here the word, I think, encapsulates everything that's contained in the gospel. God loves you. He has a plan for you. God is going to send a Messiah from heaven. The problem of sin is going to be taken care of. A mechanism is going to be made for you so that you can experience grace and mercy and hope, forgiveness and reconciliation. And so they came, it says in verse 3. They came to him. And it says, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. In, in, in verse 3, we're introduced to five new characters. Four are faith-filled friends. They're carrying a paralytic. 
Now, paralysis isn't as painful as cancer. It isn't as loathsome as leprosy or as fatal as progeria. You may not know what progeria is. It's, it's a disease that causes people to age prematurely. It's generally diagnosed in children who are 18 months to two years old. And the symptoms include stiff joints, dislocated hips, hair loss, aged looking skin, strokes and heart disease. You go from six to eight and you literally die of old age. Progeria, the average age is eight to 21 years with heart disease being the most common cause of death. Another form of the syndrome is called Werner's syndrome. It affects people in their late teens, and the average lifespan for people with this condition is between 40 and 50 years. But paralysis does render a person helpless. I had a friend in Albuquerque, New Mexico, who was paralyzed from the waist down. He lived a life early on of wickedness and rebellion. He grew up in that party scene. He found himself smoking marijuana on a rel regular, relatively regular basis, getting drunk, getting high. Life was a party for him. And one day he found himself at a party and he thought it would be a great idea if he would climb on the roof and jump off the roof in front of everybody. He thought it would be a great, he'd get a great laugh out of it. And he climbed up on the roof. And he jumped off and he landed in such a way that he shattered several vertebrae in his spine, which created instant paralysis. That stunt would have a lifelong effect. I think that that's many of our stories, isn't it? We've grown up and we've said things and we've done things and, and they've come and they have haunted us. And clearly that's what's happened here. The paralysis certainly is thorough. He never speaks, so we don't know. It clearly the paralysis such is that the, the friends are going to have to help him. I think that we live in a world where there are people who are infected with a kind of spiritual paralysis, which renders them unwilling or unable to consider their own sinful circumstances. You probably know someone exactly like that. You talk to them about the Bible and their face goes blank. You talk to them about God and about Jesus and about the gospel. And they don't seem to be able to hear. It is vain to expect such people to turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so our mission must be to bring them to Jesus. What about the people who are indifferent? And what about the people who are helpless? We have to think of creative ways to present to them the claims of Christ. You know, someone said that two or more constitute a committee. And someone has said that a committee is made up of those who take down minutes and waste hours. I hate meetings, by the way. I know that some meetings are necessary, but even the necessary meetings I struggle with. Another person has said that a committee is made up of a group of people who individually can do nothing, but together they come together and decide that clearly nothing can be done. And that's generally what happens when you have a committee. But apparently, these four men are something way more than a committee. In verse 4, look what it says, And when they could not come near him, that is Jesus, because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was, so that when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. When entrance is blocked, when the door is barred, when the windows yield no access, these faith-filled friends seek a more elevated alternative. They head for the roof. I think that when we're dealing with our family and our friends, we're often faced with obstacles and barriers and hindrances in bringing our spiritually paralyzed friends to Jesus. And we let them off easy. We say, hey, you want to have a Bible study? No. You want to go to church? No. You want to talk about the condition of your soul? No. Sometimes we need to come up with a different strategy. We need to say, tell me what you believe about Jesus. Tell me what you believe about heaven and hell. Tell me what you believe. 
When we're faced with obstacles and barriers and hindrances and bringing our paralyzed friends to Jesus, faith finds a way. Someone has nicknamed these four friends sympathy, cooperation, originality, and persistence. I like that. The four faith-filled and faithful friends demonstrate their love and their concern and their faith. And guess what? They're not willing to take a huge crowd, a closed door, a barred window. They literally and figuratively and spiritually become stretcher barriers. They're making a provision for their friend in the only way that they know how. They're bringing their friend to Jesus. And that's exactly what happened to me in my life. I was paralyzed by sin. I was hopelessly attached to sin. I was clearly, incredibly hateful and wicked towards all things Christian and Christianity. I couldn't for a moment tolerate Christians. And so on my fairly large high school campus, the Christians got together and they said, who's the person least likely to go to heaven on this campus? And and my name came up. And they began to pray for me. And they began to plead for me. They began to beg God to open up my heart and to open up my mind, just like some of you. I'll bet you many of you have a praying grandmother, grandfather, mother, father, brothers, sisters, friends, pouring their heart out, pleading with God, asking prayerfully that you would come to a place where you would understand your sinful circumstances. Prosperity may have brought these people together, but now adversity causes them to cling to their friend. And true friends are like diamonds, hard and precious and rare. And false friends are like autumn leaves, full of color, brittle, destined to disappear. It's interesting in the text, it says the four friends uncovered the roof or literally broke up the roof. In the original language, it has an amazing statement. It says they unroofed the roof. And it's hard to understand unless you understand that roofs in the first century were flat roofs. Some of you have traveled through New Mexico and you'll notice that many of the adobe type huts, if you will, were covered with boards. Then they were covered with leaves. I want you to imagine a roof in the first century very much like a lawn. Some of you have lawns and and green grass. and, And when the lawn dies, you cut the grass out and you roll the lawn up and then you put fresh sod. You cut the sod and you unroll it again. And this is exactly what these men would have done. Mark's gospel is the only one that includes the information After digging through it, mud, dirt, clay, the door is closed, the roof is open, the windows are closed, the crowd has gathered. In order to get to Jesus, you're going to have to dig through the dirt. And that's what sympathy does and cooperation and originality and and persistence. They're they're willing to dig through the dirt that keeps you away from Jesus. So that they can lower you down. And these four friends did exactly that. They dug through the dirt. They broke the tiles. They lowered the man down. And in verse 5, look what it says. And when Jesus saw their faith. He said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. What a strange and unexpected thing to say. I mean, if our church service got interrupted, I doubt I would say, son, your sins are forgiven you. I mean, the man is paralyzed. And clearly you can see From the circumstances, what this person is interested in is healing. Does physical paralysis have some connection to the soul? Is the invisible circumstances somehow related to the visible circumstances? Look what the text says. Jesus saw their faith. I want you to think for a moment and ask yourself this question. 
how did Jesus see their faith? Is it possible that when he looked up and the guy has dropped right in front of him, he sees the four friends' faces beaming, shining? You know, I can smile in over a thousand different languages. Watch. It says the same thing in almost every language. I can laugh in a hundred different languages, but I'm not going to try it with this voice. Jesus has no intention of healing the body and neglecting the man's soul. He sees their faces and of all the things you wear. Your expression is probably the most important. Jesus sees the visible, doesn't he? And he sees the invisible. He sees the external and the internal. These four men have a daring faith. They dare to do what's difficult and think about that for just a moment. Instead of saying no to the closed door, instead of saying no to the, the closed window, instead of saying no, they're going to do that which is difficult. And sometimes you might be called on to do something that is not easy, but it's a little bit more difficult. You see, paralyzed friends sometimes require extra effort. In my case, a young athlete said, hey, would you like to go to a free concert? Would, I'll buy you dinner. I said, no. He said, I'll invite cheerleaders to go with us. I said, yes. He knew my wicked heart and what would, what would appeal to me. It wasn't easy to bring this man to the Lord. They were willing to do what, what's difficult. What kind of faith? Jesus saw their faith. They were willing to do that which is difficult. And they were also willing to do that which is unorthodox. When you tear up the roof and when you drop a person right in the midst, that's not normal. By the way, Jesus doesn't go, hey, this is a rental. You know, I'm going to charge you for that roof. He doesn't do that. By the way, I have read the New Testament carefully over and over and over again. You know how many times Jesus gets upset when someone interrupts him? Never. Never. Jesus is willing to stop everything in order to address the issue. He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't criticize them. He makes a wonderful announcement. At that very moment in this very life, he says that which must be said in order for us to have any kind of chance. Son, your sins are forgiven you. Now think about that. He doesn't say, son, when you finally die and get to heaven, in the very next life, you'll finally be forgiven. What about Judgment Day? How can you know for sure? Some of you have even asked that question. How, how do you even know? How can you even know that your sins are forgiven? How can you know whether or not your sins can really, truly be forgiven? If God were not willing to forgive sin, then heaven would be empty. Charles Spurgeon used to preach, we are certain that there is forgiveness because there is a gospel. And the very essence of the gospel lies in the proclamation of the pardon for sin. Before he died for plotting to kill Adolf Hitler, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, the most experienced psychologist or observer of human nature knows infinitely less of the human heart than the simplest Christian who lives beneath the cross of Jesus. The greatest psychological insight, ability, and experience cannot grasp this one thing, what sin is. Worldly wisdom knows about distress and knows about weakness and knows about failure, but it does not know the godlessness of man. And so it also does not know that a man is destroyed only by his sin and can be healed only by forgiveness. 
Only the Christian knows this. In the presence of a psychiatrist, I can only be a sick man. In the presence of a Christian brother, I can dare to be a sinner. The psychiatrist must first search my heart, and yet he will never plumb the ultimate depth of my heart. The Christian brother knows when I come to him. Here's a sinner just like myself. A godless man who wants to confess and yearns for God's forgiveness. The psychiatrist views me as if there is no God. The brother views me as I am. Before the judging and merciful God. In the cross of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 6. And some of the scribes were sitting there. And reasoning in their hearts. I, I need you to understand something. A couple of things about this verse. Read it again. And some of the scribes were sitting there. Do you know why they were sitting there? Because they were first in line. When Jesus returned, remember there is a crowd that is packed, but before the sun has even come up, it is the religious leaders who have got in the front of the line to check out the rabbi from Nazareth. They are right next to Jesus sitting down. We migrate quickly from four friends to the faith of those four friends, to their friend, to the servant's forgiveness, to the scribe's frowns. Just like a smile says a whole lot, so does a frown. The scribes are sitting there. And they're reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? By the way, let's answer that question. Who can forgive sins? Are they right? Let's just for a moment pretend like it's a Pentecostal church and it's okay for you to talk to me. Can anyone other than God forgive sins? That's exactly right. Jesus is God. You see, in Daniel chapter 9, verse 9, it says, To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. Though we have rebelled against him, the scribes are right. The scribes are right. If Jesus is an ordinary man, if he's simply an ordinary human being, if, he, if there's nothing extraordinary, supernatural about him, then he is in fact blaspheming. Only God can forgive sin because sin is a moral offense against God. David wrote against you and you only have I sinned. Let me put to you a little bit differently. Sin is a violation and a transgression, not only of God's expectations, but God's communications. Let me give you an example. Imagine I borrow $100 from you. I am in your debt. But now I decide to pay you back by giving her the $100. How do you feel about that? Hey, I'm going to pay you back. And I give the money to her. Is that how you satisfy debts? You satisfy the debt towards the person that you owe. And so the religious leaders sitting there think inside of their heart. Jesus, you've crossed the line. But you need to understand something. They also face an extraordinary dilemma. How do I explain this man and the perfection of his character? How do I explain this man and the words that he says? How do I explain this man who opens blind eyes and deaf ears? How do I explain this man who has cleansed a leper? How do I explain this person? Jesus is claiming the rights and privileges of God for one of two reasons. Because he is in fact a man and a blasphemer or because he is in fact God. 
the religious leader says, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? And blasphemai is a complete sentence in the original language. It's in the present indicative of the verb, which basically is a complete sentence, which it says, in effect, why do you continue to insult God? It's a very strong word. And by the way, it generally means to slander, to speak ill of, to insult. And in this case, it means to insult God. The religious leaders were convinced that Jesus was insulting God by claiming the prerogatives and powers of God. In their mind, you cannot claim to forgive sin without claiming the divine prerogatives that go along with that claim, insinuating that you are God. And the statement will at first perplex them. And then infuriate them. And then alienate the religious establishment from Jesus. You know, it's wonderful being a grandpa. Playing with my grandchildren. In one of our upstairs rooms, we have a grandbaby room. And in the grandbaby room, we have a rocking chair. And I put my babies on that rocking chair. And the babies grab a hold and I press the ears and it knees and they start rocking like there's no tomorrow and you can rock and you can rock. But you know what's interesting about a rocking chair? It has a lot of motion, but it never goes anywhere. And the religious leaders are exactly like that. They're in motion. Rocking back and forth and back and forth, but they're never, ever going anywhere. Look what it says in verse 8. But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your heart? Question. Is Jesus reading their thoughts? Yeah. By the way, can normal people read each other's minds? Not normally. Moms can do it with their children. They can look right at you and they can know the evil intention of your heart. Jesus is either supernaturally understanding things through the powerful gift of discernment, or he is once again exercising his prerogatives as God Something is happening supernatural. By the way, in the first service, I offered money for anyone who could read my thoughts. A hundred dollars, and I'll do it again this service. I will give anyone in this audience one hundred dollars if you can guess the word that I'm thinking in my mind right at this very moment. Go ahead. Burrito is a good guess, but it's not the right guess. Give me another one. Huh? Nope. 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 Throat. Nope. In the first service, they guessed green chili and Chick-fil-A. I go, those are all good guesses because these are things that I think about a lot. But I was thinking the word. Mephibosheth. Jesus says in verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. What is the answer to the question Jesus raises? Someone might say, well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven you, but there's no evidence that forgiveness has actually taken place. It might be harder to say, arise, take up your bed and walk. If, in fact, when you say that, you expect the paralytic to actually rise up and walk. You know what I think the answer is? I think that the answer might be both are equally possible for God. God can say your sins are forgiven you and it's true. 
And God, because of his power, because of his presence, because of his awesomeness, can say, arise, take up your bed and walk. The question Jesus raises is incredible for two reasons. Number one, because both are equally possible for God. But the other side of the coin is both are equally impossible for a human being. Imagine Jesus says to any of the scribe, any of the religious leaders, he invites anyone there to just simply say, you say it, you say it. Tell this man that his sins are forgiven and make him believe it. Can the scribes and the Pharisees, can any of the religious leaders say, in the name of Moses, your sins are forgiven? Can he say, in the name of the first five books of the Moses, your sins are forgiven? Can all of the religion, can all of the prayer, can all of the good works of every single person in the room combined forgive his sins? What if a man has a particular gift of faith and he stands up and he says, in the name of Moses, in the name of Judaism, in the name of this, in the name of that, rise up and walk. Both are equally possible for God. Both are equally impossible for man. The question that Jesus raises is surprising for several different reasons, mostly because it's addressing the critic of Jesus and the critic of Christianity. Because the scribe, the Pharisee, the religious leader, they can't guarantee forgiveness of sins. They can't guarantee anything. And they certainly can't bring wholeness and wellness to this man. And that's the impoverished circumstances of everyone who insults Christianity and Christ. The answer that Jesus gives shows the poverty and the insufficiency of the religious establishment to offer hope. To speak into this man's life either morally or physically or spiritually or, or supernaturally. How wicked, how wicked, how wicked are the people who oppose God and who oppose Christ and who oppose forgiveness, who oppose hope. This was in my email box. Federal judge bans prayer at graduation ceremony. This was yesterday. A high school in Texas. It says Chief United States District Judge Fred Beery forbade even using the word prayer in this hijacking of religious freedom. One of the valedictorians who was scheduled to speak wanted to be able to pray for her classmates. From the story, quote, the ruling was in response to a lawsuit filed by Krista and Danny Schultz. Their son is among those scheduled to participate in Saturday's graduation ceremony. The judge declared that the Schultz family and their son would suffer irreparable harm. Question. How can a non-existent God... Hearing a non-existent prayer create irreparable harm to the unbeliever. If I said, I'm going to invite the tooth fairy to come into all of your rooms tonight and put money under your pillow. Here's what you would do. Some of you might think, no, that's nice. And then you look under your pillow and you discover nothing's there. And then you think, he's crazy. There's no tooth fairy, and he doesn't deliver money underneath the pillow. But it will cause irreparable harm if there's a God who's there and a God who listens. Especially if she prays a prayer like, Heavenly Father, my classmates are lost and they're in darkness, and they need to know that, there's, that their sins can be forgiven and that there's help and hope and that there's life in Jesus Christ. You know... It's a cruel hoax when someone says, everything's been discovered about you. Get out of town. 
It's a cruel hoax if someone pretending to be a federal agent says that your tax returns are about to be audited. But the most cruel hoax, the most wicked thing that could possibly take place ever in the history of humanity is for a person like Jesus to show up on the scene and lie about something so important. Can you imagine perfection in his character, perfection in his countenance, perfection in all that he says and he he does, but he lies about something that's so important. Jesus doesn't claim, he doesn't dispute the claim that only God can forgive sin. But look what he does in verse 10. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, Jesus reinforces the idea that God has given to Jesus the right, the privilege, the prerogative of deity. God the Father has given Jesus the Son the absolute right to forgive sins. Look what it says. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power. By the way, there are two words translated power in our English text. The first is dunamis, which is intrinsic power. It would be like if a person said, I have the power to tear this telephone book in half. That's a strong person to have that kind of power. The second word is exousia, which is a derived power or an authority that has been granted. This is the word that's used here, exousia. It's a derived authority. It's the same authority that a police officer who holds up a badge says, stop in the name of the law. By the way, if you're driving a three ton vehicle and the police officer says stop in the name of the law can your three ton vehicle run over the 5 foot 11 185 pound officer yeah it could but is that smart is it smart to run over the officer because when the officer holds up the badge and says stop in the name of the law if for some foolish stupid reason you decide to run the officer over Are all of the other officers in the department, do they take it personally? Does the mayor take it personally and does the governor take it personally? You see, when you run over that person, you run over the person who gave them the authority to tell you to stop. And Jesus is in effect saying, I have the power on earth to forgive sin. Jesus has the right to forgive the inward stain and the outward disability. And by the way, Jesus is in effect pointing out that it's impossible for him to blaspheme or insult either the Father or himself, just like you said, because he is God. And as God, he has both the real power and the conferred power. And a simple reading of the Old and the New Testament, you'll see a short list of some of the shared titles of Jehovah in the Old Testament and Jesus in the New Testament. To all but the most committed skeptic and unbeliever, the truth that Jesus has all the prerogatives of deity. Jesus is called the creator. Jesus is called the savior. Jesus is called the judge. Jesus is called the raiser of the dead. Jesus is called the light. He's called the shepherd. I am the glory of God. God, the first and the last. The redeemer, the bridegroom, the rock. Now, one of these or two of these might be explainable. But when you pile each title on top of the other, you build a building that says that Jesus is who he says that he is, the forgiver of sins. And that's what we're drawing our focus of attention. Jesus is the one who releases the moral and spiritual debt. That's what arrests our attention. If Jesus can really forgive sins, if sin is the greatest problem that we face... And there's nothing, there is nothing, there is nothing more important for you than to have your sins forgiven. And the moment that Jesus says this, that you might see, 
It's put up or shut up time. Can you imagine each of the religious leaders saying, in the name of Moses, stand up and take your bed. In the name of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, take up your bed. Jesus was willing to give them something to see. In verse 11, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, go to your home. Can you imagine the tension? Can you imagine? His eyelids start to blink. His mouth starts to move. His hands start to move. He gets up and he walks out of the door. Look what it says in verse 12. Immediately he arose. Can you imagine if things had gone differently? Can you imagine if Jesus said, I say to you, arise, take up your bed and go to your house. And the man says, I'm paralyzed. I've always been paralyzed. I'll never be anything other than paralyzed. You can't change me. Your will can't change me. Your your willingness to forgive me can't forgive me. The forgiveness of sin is dramatically demonstrated. And by the way, will this miracle create in the minds of the religious leaders positive proof that Jesus is the Messiah? Will they fall down on their knees? Will they say, you are the Messiah. You're the promised one. You're the promised one from heaven. And I'm going to believe you. Is that how it works? That's exactly right. You see, as we proceed in our study, we're going to discover something. The religious leaders, no matter how overwhelming the evidence is, they can't bring themselves to say that Jesus is who he says he is. But rather, they're going to now say that he has this amazing ability through wickedness and demonic powers. Does Jesus have the power to forgive sin? Look again. Jesus knows what's going on inside of you. He understands your thoughts, your motives, your intentions, your calculations, your reasonings. He understands the inside and the outside of the people who come and the people who don't. He demonstrates supernatural wisdom and insight and intelligence. He invites the religious leaders to test him to do that which is impossible. And then he makes the bold statement that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. That's the purpose statement. And if Jesus has the power to forgive sin, then that man at that moment must get up and walk. And he does. A man once stood on a soapbox at Hyde Park and he was scorning Christianity. People tell me there's a God that exists, but I don't see him. People tell me there's life after death, but I don't see it. People tell me there's a judgment to come, but I don't see it. People tell me there's a heaven and hell, but I can't see him. He won some cheap applause and he climbed down from the wooden pulpit and another person struggled to get on top of the box. People tell me... There's a blue sky above, but I can't see it. People tell me that there are trees nearby, but I can't see them. You see, I'm blind. And then he got down from the box. The grass is green and the sky is blue. And the trees are nearby. And one of those trees will be cut down and it will serve as the cross that will crucify the Savior. You see, real healing only begins if you can hear those words spoken in verse 5. Son, daughter, your sins are forgiven you. Because the moment Jesus says that to your heart, guess what? Everything is different and everything is changed. The guilt is gone. The peace comes. You're reconciled to the Father. By the way, 
Real healing can only begin as you're healed in your relationship to God. Only the person, only the person, only the person who has heard Jesus say your sins are forgiven can begin to live a life of adequacy. How can you handle your life? How can you be confident? How can you be poised? How can you be accepted? How can you be free from inner turmoil and tension and insecurity? How can you experience healing in the broken relationships that litter your life? How can you experience peace and comfort? It's the sinner and the sick who Jesus came to make whole. And that's the promise. By the way, there's one more thing I want you to take away from the text. You will treat people the way you think God treats you. If you genuinely see God as gracious and kind and long-suffering and forgiving and healing and understanding and patient, then guess what? You're going to become a stretcher bearer. You're going to understand that faith sees what no one else can see and is willing to do not only the difficult, but the unorthodox. The moment you experience forgiveness of your sin, you realize that forgiveness is available to everyone. If you genuinely see God as distant, silent, capricious, unloving, uncaring, distant, That's exactly how you're going to treat everybody around you. A.W. Tozer said, What you think about God becomes the best indicator of who you really are. Jesus has some challenges yet in the, the passage, but we're going to talk about that when we come back. Heavenly Father, I pray for each and every person here. Lord, we know that You're willing to forgive the sinner. Lord, we know that only God can forgive sin. Lord, we know that nothing but the blood of Jesus can wash us and cleanse us. That only God can forgive and forgiveness can only come on God's terms. And the terms that have been outlined in the New Testament are the shed blood of a Savior. And so, Lord, I pray for each and every person who wants wholeness and wellness, who wants freedom from guilt and peace. Lord, I pray that they would turn to you and and they would long to hear the words, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven you. In Jesus name. Amen.